how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 457. In this episode, I'm actually teaming up with ISA, the International Screenwriters Association. If you haven't heard of ISA, they champion screenwriters to agents, managers, and producers seeking talent and provides essential resources to elevate your craft and career. The next two episodes, I'm actually speaking to a few ISA contest winners. We'll talk about what they experienced from winning, how ISA kind of helped them find agents representation and of course their creative projects in this first episode of the two i'm speaking with arian ihasu we talk about observing the rise and fall of an artist hypochondriacs and misanthropes how her screenwriting career got started during the pandemic and is surviving the writer's strike which has recently ended pitching to producers and things that surprised her about that being prepared yet relaxed and much more the print version of this interview will also be found on the ISA website over at networkisa.org. Um, so I've always loved reading. So it actually started more with books than movies um, because of my mom. So I always read a lot of books and uh, and that's how I developed a passion for stories. And, um, and when I was um, studying in England, I was studying at King's College, I watched a lot of BBC shows. Uh, all my, the you know, adaptations of all my favorite novels like Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, Charles Dickens, and, uh, and coming from a literature background, I was like, well, oh, I could, I could also adapt uh, my favorite novels. Um, and then I realized that I could also write my own stories. So it's sort of uh, because of literature and the BBC <laughs> that, uh, that I wanted to get into screenwriting. Did you notice, um, are there certain themes about the books and the movies and series that you love that you saw kind of arise in your own writing? I'm curious if there was certain you start to notice like, oh, this is my type of writing. I'm, I'm curious what kind of stood out to you. Um, absolutely. I mean, period pieces. <laughs> uh, it's my favorite genre. So that's probably because I was heavily influenced by by all the, the BBC adaptations. But um and and the literature, of course, it's just the stories that I feel comfortable in. Um, and also, I, well, being a, a big fan of Jane Austen and the stories being about women, I think I've always developed um, an interest in talking about the female condition. And I think that, you know, in screenwriting, they tell you, you have to put as many obstacles for your characters to overcome as possible. And I feel like, well, putting it in the 18th or 19th century, seems like the perfect <laughs> setting for a maximum of obstacles for women. So it's sort of, I wouldn't say that it helps writing the script, putting it there, but women had so much more to overcome. So um, that's, I guess that's what my, uh, like my favorite themes come from, like finding your voice, um, overcoming obstacles that sort of um, restrict your freedom, um, not only as a woman, but as an artist. These are kind of the, the themes that I love to gravitate around. Um, I'm very interested in uh, what it means to be an artist, like the create the creation process, um, 
how how does it does it spurt out of you or is it some sort of like a, a genius um a genius element of of your personality or is it just a lot of work and uh, so i i kind of like um observing like the rise and fall of the artist that sort of thing how they're accepted by society or rejected by society and when they're women it's even worse they're they're, they're uh, even more rejected from society so um um yeah artists and particularly like for women it's like the motherhood uh you know because women are sort of conflicted between two motherhoods I would say like the 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 motherhood of their work as artists if they create you know paintings books whatever it is and then having children of their own and sort of how do you reconcile those two aspects so that's something that really comes back in my writing very often I think there's a book called the the baby on the fire escape that touches on that I'm not sure if you've read that it's an interesting I analysis I will write it down um I've talked to Chris Fogler, who wrote The Hero's Journey. A lot of that we think of masculinity. There's also a book uh, by Kim Hudson called The Virgin Promise. Maybe that's more about like femininity. Femininity. Is there anything that you think is is wrong about the way that The Hero's Journey is taught in regards to female protagonists? Um, it's prob well, there are probably more examples of <laughs> male heroes than um, female heroines. That's for sure. Um, even though I think now that the the discourse around that is changing, which is which is lovely. But um, I don't know. For me, I guess I never was hindered by that in you know in in my in my personal life. So I sort of every when I'm taught about like a hero, I always think I can apply it to a heroine if that's, you know, so I kind of, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm not as feminist as other people, you know, but it's just, I feel like everything that a hero can do, a heroine can do it too. So I will sort of, it will not deter me. I will not be offended. Oh, this is excluding women. I will rather sort of analyze it and be like, oh, so a woman can do the same. Great. And I will sort of apply it for female characters. Um, so I don't know <laughs> if that's answering your question. Yeah. Uh, it's curious too, because a lot of the the older the films from the seventies and eighties that we think of heroes, Indiana Jones, and all these people, a lot of them, if because they're still telling these stories, they have children or their father figures now. So we're seeing maybe more of what women characters have always had to deal with. I think we're kind of seeing like a, a level playing ground maybe across the board. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think uh, yeah, now there are so much more uh, movies about like female Indiana Jones kind of. Uh, Thing. so uh, no it's it's really interesting um yeah it's really interesting to see how it's changing <laughs> well tell me about um some of your own work when did you kind of start to first get noticed when did some of your your work get a little appraise or you felt like this is maybe a real career path as opposed to maybe a hobbyist mm. <laughs> well, I think it took a while. It really took a while. Um, so I went to AFI, um, graduated in 2020, right into COVID, right, which was the best time to graduate, probably. <laughs> um, so I think it was a really tough transition into the industry. Everything was sort of dead. Um, so I would say I spent like at least two years really with nothing happening for me. 
Um, I sent my stuff to competitions. Um, you know, sometimes you get like quarterfinalists, semifinalists, uh, but that's sort of, that's about it. I never won any big thing. Um, so I would say it's in, um, 2022 when I applied to the ISA Fast Track Fellowship. Um, I had been following ISA for a little while. Um, they post writing gigs, which I think is incredibly fair for a screenwriting platform. Lots of other platforms don't do that. Um, and you can, you can apply directly. Um, and so I applied to this fellowship and to my amazement, um, I won. And so, uh, the, the, the prize for, um, the fellowship was to have a week of meetings with executives and producers. And so I met about eight of them. And um, and that's how I optioned a screenplay uh, feature. So that was a really big breakthrough uh, in my career because um, uh, now the producers are trying to attach a director and get the ball rolling. And, you know, and so I'm, I'm extremely proud. And they're also um, they're helping me trying to, like, secure an agent as well. So um I think it would have, yeah, it would have happened like last year. And, uh, and recently, thanks to ISA again, um, I found a manager. So that is also really helping, except of course for the strike. So you can't do anything basically now, <laughs> but, uh, you know, plenty of time to keep writing. And hopefully, uh, after the strike, my, my manager will be able to send my scripts, um, to production companies and, and things will get, you know, rolling even more. I hope so. <laughs> I think all this happening in the in the pandemic and the strike now. I think once you get past that, you're you're bound to, you know, if you survive right. all of that. Um, tell me about so you. You had the credibility of ISA winning the competition. How did you mentally prepare for those week of meetings? What did you do to kind of rethink your work or prepare your pitch? Or tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, so I guess lots of yeah, preparing my pitches, uh, making sure that you know I I can. Um, defend each of my stories very well and uh, also sort of putting forward my more contemporary stories because as I said I'm more of a period piece writer and it's really difficult to try to uh, to get these period pieces made because they're very expensive so um, I also write dark comedies so um, uh, Felicity Wren was uh, you know part of the ISA she was helping me sort of put this story forward don't hesitate like put your contemporary stuff forward so um, yeah trying to really um yeah, not be not be shy to talk about this uh, this other part of of my writing and um, and just calm my nerves because that was the most. I'm so nervous; it's it's really horrible. So um, try to really calm down and um, and it actually was not as bad as I anticipated because it's always that right. You you make a mountain of it in your head before it happens, and and I think it's also me being French. You know, in France, people are not as um, as friendly as Americans and they're just always you know so it's it's about your diplomas and your education and blah 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 so it's it doesn't put you in a very comfortable place you know you you feel like you're being judged um whereas here like all the producers and execs that I met they were just so nice and very conversational as well so yeah I think that's that's the great perk of Americans the way that they can make you feel comfortable because they're so friendly and warm and so yeah I think that um that really helped to sort of make me feel more comfortable during all the interviews. <laughs> did you have to, um, did you mainly just pitch the story or did you pitch like things about yourself as well in terms of like how you wrote the story, any, any, any guidance you could provide for uh, young writers expecting these types of meetings? 
So I think you have to be really clear about who you are as a writer. So sort of have a, I don't like this, like a name like brand, have a brand for yourself. Um, Cause I am not a product to be sold. So I don't really like that name, but basically sort of, yeah, be able to pitch yourself as a writer, like what sort of scripts are you interested in? What are your references? Uh, what do you aspire to write? Uh, what sort of thing do you want for your career? And have also like um, personal experiences sort of readily available to um, to uh, express a point or to sort of um, to present yourself in a different light from other people. So um, so I think for me, I would exploit the fact that uh, I'm French, uh, but I grew up all over the world. So I have a very like cosmopolitan experience. And that's sort of what I like about stories, the fact that they're very diverse. So I think have something sort of prepared that makes you unique. Uh, compared to all the other writers did you feel i think you said you were leaning more into the dark comedy space because you do have to kind of put yourself in a lane or a box to some degree to, to market yourself um do you did you feel the need to be funny or anything like that because of that lane you were aiming towards right um yeah it's sometimes it's a bit difficult to sort of um yeah brand yourself as something unique so i just i just said that i was both i was i loved peer dramas but i can also write dark comedies um and i think there's i have a bit of a like a british humor about myself about me like a very self-deprecating which apparently i need to work on because it's too you know i, I can't bring myself down but i sort of do all the time because i'm constantly laughing at myself and and making fun of me of myself so um I feel like that sort of comes naturally when I talk about dark comedies and they're very, they're about like, you know, themes like uh, suicide and death and, you know, all these like glorious themes. And I say that with a big smile and it's like my neurosis you know, speaking and me trying to tame the idea that we're all going to die, like that sort of thing. So I, I approach it in a very like um, funny way because that's just how um, I want to approach tragedy through like comedy I think that's why I, I don't write comedies I write dark comedies because it's always talking about very tragic subjects but through a funny lens because um like sometimes it's it's crazy how comedy and tragedy just are kind of the same you know but on, on the other side of the spectrum so they sort of at some point they they walk hand in hand um so I sort of always expose that when I talk about dark comedy it's just you know hypochondriacs and misanthropes and I'm both of the both of these things and they're just trying to you know, <laughs> trying to survive and just you know <laughs> uh, reconcile with their demons which I think is what dark comedy is about was there any questions you were asked that maybe you weren't prepared for that surprised you in those meetings um yeah like um I think um how would you go about reaching out to um to that producer or that you know more like um yeah how do you how do you reach out to people and I'm an introvert this is the part about screenwriting that I really don't like <laughs> it's when you have to sort of sell yourself and put yourself forward and reach out to people um so I'd say more maybe of a technical technical aspect of screenwriting like who do you reach out to what would you do to get hold of this production company that you want uh, to produce your script or um, so yeah I think um, 
Yeah, I always try to prepare like, you know, what's your favorite movie or what's your favorite writer? That's sort of like readily available sort of thing. But I think about like how the industry functions, I was um, I was caught off guard. <laughs> are you in there? Are you in these meetings kind of, I assume you're kind of by yourself, right? Like, is that intimidating? I'll tell me a little bit about that. Just preparing to kind of move from maybe writing alone in a, in a room to like having this big pitch meeting. Yeah, absolutely. So with ISA, uh, Felicity Ren always sort of introduces you to um, to the producer or the person you're going to talk to. So it sort of helps break the ice. So it's really fantastic. But otherwise, if you don't have that, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really intimidating. But as I said, I feel like Americans are so friendly and nice. So they immediately make you feel uh, comfortable. At least that's how I felt. Um, but yeah, try to go as... Um, as relaxed <laughs> as possible in these meetings. And I think not also not to be afraid to talk about something else than screenwriting. Like, um, you know, when you, when you come in, like, Oh, did you like the, the, the hurricane we had, like Hillary, how did you survive that? Or just, you know, talk about something, um, something different to sort of like make everyone comfortable in the room. And like, not, I think not to be afraid of, um, talking about very random subjects at first to sort of enter the room and then be able to sort of redirect to what you're actually talking about. And it, it's still very early stages. Did anything about these meetings change your style or approach to screenplays at all? I'm curious if it, uh, when the competition makes you think differently about the first five pages or the pitch or anything like that, the log line maybe. Um, I don't think so because I... I feel like the rule is always to be prepared as much as you can. So um, have your pitches prepared, have your log lines prepared. Um, and you sort of know as a rule that you'll, the 10 first pages need to really like grip your reader. So you need to uh, make an effort, have them absolutely like perfect. Um, but I would say for me, it's more like, because I come from an academic background where, you know, you enter like directly into the subject. Okay, this is what we're talking about. You're prepared. You've got like uh, introduction, part one, part two, part three, conclusion. You know, you sort of, and here it was more the sort of the conversational side, convers conversational side that sort of took me off guard. You know, I was like more prepared than, and actually, um, yeah, so that's sort of how I rethought about meetings. It's more, oh, it's actually, it's got a very, relaxed and sort of conversational side to them that is not just business and screenwriting and scripts but just like human to human like person to person sort of try to create a bond try to um to get on well with the person and then if you do and you have a productive meeting on top of it then it's great but eventually since it's it's a contact you want to keep. It's a person you want to keep writing to. You want to keep sending your scripts to. Um, if you get along well with them and you just like them and they like you, um, it's going to make for a better um, partnership in the end anyway. So I would say I learned less about scripts and, you know, but more about how to just be relaxed and and connect with another human being outside of just the business of screenwriting if, yeah. if that makes sense yeah let's talk about your your work some more so um and if you can't say certain details you know do what you need to do but can you tell us a little bit about the script that that won like any, any details you can share about the the idea and then i'm wondering like how many scripts maybe you wrote before that one just so 
novice riders are aware of the work that goes into into what got you where you are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wrote this screenplay when I was um, still at AFI. Um, so I, I benefited from the help of like my class and everything. Um, but I think it took a few years to get from, you know, the moment that an idea emerges and you read an article, an idea catches, you know, you, catches your attention and then you turn it into a working screenplay. So I would say three, four years maybe of just like going back to the script and um, yeah. And I think I had written maybe uh, two or three scripts before that um, still at AFI. Cause I really, I wasn't much of a screenwriter before AFI. I hadn't written scripts. I just wrote scripts to get into the schools. <laughs> so um, yeah. Um, but yeah, this story is called uh, Shattered Faces. It's a pilot and um, it's about the, uh, the disfigured soldiers of World War I and how a, an American sculptor, Anna Coleman Ladd, um, made prosthetic masks, painted, sculpted and painted prosthetic masks in her studio in Paris to try to give them a new face. Uh, and restore their dignity and and just bring them back to life. So I, I this idea first came when I discovered an article about her, and I I really thought it was fantastic how art wasn't just neutral in a way, you know, uh, like it's hanging in a museum and it doesn't do anything for anybody, you know, except you know you just go to admire it. But there, it actually had an impact. It was changing the lives of of veterans and of disfigured men. And, and so I felt it was so compelling that art had such a powerful role into restoring these men's dignity. And so I, I dug and dug and dug into this story, um, into just the World War One and particularly the disfigured soldiers. We have a term in French, uh, we call them broken faces, cassée. so it's like these men, they have like a particular space in, in how we uh, think of World War One, so and and it's also because their fate was particularly terrible. Mm -hmm. They weren't, they didn't receive pensions because they weren't considered uh, handicapped because they still had the use of you know their the hands, their legs. Uh, they since they were amputated, but not having a face is really close to not being anything. You lose your humanity when you don't have a face. So they had to fight to be recognized, to obtain pensions. And so it's a really, really heartbreaking story. And um and the fact that I could explore the the courage of these of these artists in in trying to help um and then I also wanted to study in parallel science because that's the moment where uh doctors were trying to make grafts. Mm -hmm. uh, to reconstruct the faces. And it was so new because the, these types of injuries from shells and everything were very new. And it's because they were in trenches also that these types of injuries happened. So they didn't have a lot of experience dealing with these types of injuries. And so um, they were experimenting. It was just the beginning. They were experimenting. And uh, and so my story is set kind of in the middle. I took a... Um, a fictional protagonist who is a painter who um, has sort of turned away from painting because of a of a personal trauma of her. She um, when she was she was so absorbed in her in her painting that she forgot to look after her daughter who got injured and and lost an eye in the injury. And so she's uh, she's so traumatized by that she only thinks that um, painting is is doomed to bring you know um, 
to, to fail. And so she refuses to paint and she goes to France and helps at the hospital where she just changed sheets and bed sheets and, and everything. And, uh, and uh, so she sees like what the, some um, disfigured soldiers arriving at the hospital. And then on the other side, there's the sculptors who try to recruit her when they find that, uh, you know, she's, she's a very gifted painter and she could actually paint such realistic masks that she could, she could restore these men's faces. And so it's sort of her as well, like trying to, to redeem herself. And it's also like her redemption mm. through painting when she accepts to enter the studio and paint the masks, um, you know, how she can forgive herself for what she did to her daughter, who's also disfigured in a way. Um, and so it's a, it's a redemption story uh, that gravitates into this, um, this just fascinating world. <laughs> I'm curious about um, how you kind of start. You mentioned approaching academically. Do you start with research and then go back and forth with character? And also kind of how early in the process did you decide this is a series as opposed to a, a film? I'm curious about some of those ideas too. Right. Um, so, yeah. So for me, um, I know that lots of screenwriters start with plot. They know what's going to happen. I don't. I really am terrible with plot. I know characters though. Characters is what I start with. So, um, and I usually have um, like a fragment of something that I want to explore, like um, like a revenge, an artist who was locked up in an asylum, couldn't exercise her art and decides to, um, and manages to escape and get revenge or just a little something about what I want to, the, maybe the theme I want to explore. Um, and then I go back to the character try to uh, to understand who they are because then I understand how they will react and what they will do and then the plot sort of stems from there and because I do lots of period pieces I need research I just need research I need to know what it was like to be in an asylum in you know London 19th century uh what did asylums look like uh what were the treatments same for like the the disfigured soldiers um, what were the hospitals like when they were treated? What was the at what stage um, were like um, facial reconstruction was or all of that? So lots and lots of research because I think it also helps build like visually what the world is going to look like if you and if you don't really know what your world is, I think it's very hard to sort of put a story in it. So I love to just research, read read as much as I can. And it's also the stage where everything is possible. So it's like you've got that freedom of, oh, it could go there, it could go there, you know. It's very freeing. Um, and then once I've researched everything, um, I sort of, I put that back into structure now. Um, and then you've got, you know, if it's feature, uh, act one, two, three, and then you sort of put everything and, uh, and you start writing. Um, whether or not it's a series, I think it depends on if you find an engine. So it's really it's also something that travels me because I'm very bad with that. An engine really supposes that you've got a lot of plot that you can sort of, you know, um, create. Uh, and I'm bad with that. So um, I think for Shattered Faces, it was always a pilot because I wanted to explore what became of these men. And I just couldn't explore that over... I needed time. I needed them to uh, arrive at the hospital, then go through the grafts. Uh, the grafts could be maybe successful or not. Um, and then going to the workshop, having the masks painted. So, and how do they reinsert themselves into society? How do they become operational, not only citizens, but just human beings? Because when you don't have a face, you're 
psychologically so broken, like you have no identity. So it was that sort of the subject of identity was so strong and so um, the stakes were so high in this story that I needed time to explore that. So I came up with four seasons um, because I just con constantly had more story, like how, how, what are they going to become? How are they going to reinsert themselves? So I think it really depends if you've got an engine and if you've got something you can explore over multiple seasons or if you think that it's it can be more contained. And I usually tend to go towards features more because it's reassuring to me that beginning middle and end is like oh I can control that that's like you know that's closed <laughs> so um, I tend to gravitate more towards features um, even though for this particular story it was obvious to me it had to be a series hmm. we'll just do um, one or two more so you hit some of the success that all writers are kind of looking for they want to get some representation and different things like that can you talk a little bit about, like, you put a lot of effort into this very clearly. Um, can you tell me about your thought process? Is there some value in writing spec scripts, whether or not they get made? Obviously, they make you a better writer. Or is it just like a full commitment to get a story made? Like, how did you kind of think about some of those things as you were maybe looking at competitions or starting to think more about actually getting the series on TV somewhere? Right. Um, well... I feel like in my case, I tend to write what I love, <laughs> which I'm I'm kind of conflicted about this advice, you know, like write what you know. I'm conflicted about this advice. We can come back to that later if you want. But um, yeah, so I tend to write what I'm really passionate about because I know I will simply do a better job at it. Um, the script will be better because I just put my heart and soul in it, um, you know. And I think in the case of Shattered Faces, um, I think it's fantastic, you know, because I can defend my story till the end of time. But I didn't, I think something that I didn't think of was also, how do you show disfigured people on the screen? You know, is it going to be so hard to watch that nobody will want to make it? And I think I didn't think about that. And I think maybe that's why um, I haven't managed to have Shattered Faces made, uh, at least until now. It's because it's just such, it's so shocking. It like, you know, and doing the research, I looked up photos. I, I duck photos of these disfigured soldiers. And I can tell you, it's horrifying. And I saw them in black and white, which I imagine if I had seen them in color, it would have been absolutely traumatizing. So I think in this case, I just went for what I loved and I thought it was such an amazing story. It had to be told and I still stand by my gun. I I think it's it's it needs to be told because there still are disfigured, sol uh, not necessarily soldiers, but disfigured people throughout the world and we don't really see them. Why? Because it's hard to watch them, but they still have a place in society. And that's what I'm trying to do with my show, show that they still have a place in society. So we should try to show them so that they can be accepted uh, because all you want is to be seen, right? Just as a human being, you want to be seen whether or not you have a face or not. And so so I think maybe that's something for, you know, when, when people are ready for that kind of story, um, I really hope it gets made. I'm rooting for it. <laughs> um, but um, 
yeah, I think it's some people will want to sort of know what is um, what should be done in the market, like today's market. And I think that's why having um, a manager or an agent really helps because they're the ones who absolutely know um, they they're aware of what's successful, what's not successful. And they can sort of, you know, s steer you a little bit. Um, but I guess as a rule, I would say just do like write what you love because that's what's going to get noticed. And like, I think the, the scripts that I was the most passionate about are the ones who got noticed um, and that people sort of responded to because there was, I don't know, something maybe visceral about them that, and I always try, I think, even though I do period pieces to find like the universal element about these stories, like why do they speak to us today, even though they took place 200 years ago. And so I think maybe it's that universal element that uh, appeals to people still today. So I think I would say, write what you love. Um, and if you can try to make it maybe a little bit in, you know, in today's um, what's working today, then it's even better. But if you had to choose um, between, you know, making the next Marvel movie or writing what you really love, I would say write what you love because it's going to be so much more specific and true and authentic than a Marvel movie you're trying to copy. Um, so that's what I would say. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.